Welcome to Shelter and Solidarity, a deep dive with artists, authors, and activists during this COVID pandemic. I'm your host, Joe Ramsey, Zoom casting with you here from Dorchester, Massachusetts, on the south side of Boston. Here in God knows how many uh, months into this COVID pandemic, year two, here we are with Shelter and Solidarity number sh show number 33, here to focus on the challenges and opportunities facing left and progressive media in this protracted COVID crisis, as well as the crisis of capitalism. We are joined by some terrific guests, which you'll hear about in just a moment. But uh, the first uh, person I have to introduce is uh, someone who should be familiar to you on Shelter and Solidarity, our co-producer who will be co-host tonight, Linda Liu. Uh, Linda Liu, who's my partner, comrade in arms, and tonight co-host of this great show, also a uh, professor of sociology, media studies at UMass Boston. Linda, great to have you on this side of the camera. Thank you. It's great to be here on this side of the camera. Uh, welcome everyone to our guests and all our participants and our viewers and listeners. Um, also, uh, a few of my students are here, so that's great. Um, thanks so much for coming. And okay, so I'm going to introduce our guests right now. We have four great guests from the world of progressive and independent media. First up, we have Camila Vai. Camila is an editor, translator, and writer based in New York. She is assistant editor of Monthly Review. Camila, welcome. It's so great to have you with us on Shelter and Solidarity today. Thank you. Um, this is my face. Hello. Yeah, and Camilla, this is just, this is a great, it's great to have a monthly review person. I just grew up reading monthly review. It was like where I cut my little socialist teeth. So I really, in the suburbs of Massachusetts, so it really, uh, just great to have, have monthly review represented. I love hearing that. Thank you. All right. And next up we have uh, Jason Premis. Jason is executive editor and associate publisher of Dig Boston, as well as the executive director of the Boston Institute for Independent Journalism. Jason, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks very much, Linda and Joe, and hi, everybody. Great to see you, Jason. We're also joined today by Kurt Stand. Kurt is a moderator of Portside, material of interest to the left a community of people on the left and an alternative medium of communication. Kurt, welcome and thanks for joining us on Shelter and Solidarity today. And thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to uh, being here. I know a lot of you from writings or what you're about. And so I'm um, just happy to be part of the discussion. Great. And finally, we have Joe Maniscalco. Joe is a freelance labor journalist and senior editor at laborpress.org. Welcome, Joe. It's great to have you with us on Shelter and Solidarity today. Thanks, Linda. Thanks for inviting me. Joe, it's great to see you again. Last time I saw you actually was when we were in planning meetings for this very project back uh, months and months ago over almost a year ago when, when Tim Sheard and Seren and I were putting this thing together. So it's really great to have you back as a guest. Yeah, I was there at the, at the origins, at the very beginning. You were, right? We were just trying to find another place off of Facebook to try to convene comrades together in a, in a, more, in a deeper way. Uh, we have so many great comrades on this call, include people who are former guests here. So uh, as always on Shelter and Solidarity, uh, we plan to get into a robust, inclusive discussion before the end of the night here. Uh, the first hour or so with four 
guests, we will likely have about an hour's worth of panel discussion. But maybe it may be as soon as 45 minutes or so, we will welcome you all in uh, to the discussion with questions or comments. Even my cat may make an appearance before then, so please pardon Hermes in advance. Um, however, um, if you please do can, uh, if you can all keep your mics, all who are not guests uh, or not, I should say, not panelists, please do make sure to keep yourself muted as it is here in Zoom world. If you are heard, you will be seen and who knows what we'll see. So uh, this is being recorded and uh, we'll see you in about 45 minutes to an hour, I hope if you're, and then in the meantime, if you have questions or comments you wanna flag that you wanna be able to ask out loud or have one of our moderators deliver for you, please use the chat and put a question in all caps and we will make sure to do our best to relay it. Before we turn to our guests with our first question in the order they were introduced, uh, we wanted to take a moment at the start of the show and to introduce uh, or to address uh, and to honor a recently fallen comrade, uh, someone I'm sure that many of you have heard of and have paid attention to for years, for decades, for practically a century. Uh, as, as you all know, we lost Lawrence Ferlinghetti this week, uh, or at least we on this earth um, at the age of 101, the um, long-standing, influential beat poet, radical dissident, also independent publisher, bookstore operator, you know, underground press kind of pioneer, uh, as well as a tremendous poet. And we wanted to take a moment as our opening credits indicated to honor Lawrence Ferlinghetti. And frankly, inspired by poets like him, we're trying to create a little more poetic and artistic space at the start of these shows, a little moment of, you might say, secular prayer before we get into the deep dive. So I've been asked by my fellow producers, rather than to play a clip from Lawrence Ferlinghetti himself, to read a selection from one of his later books. Um, this is a book um, of prose poetry in some ways. Uh, it's called Poetry as Insurgent Art. So please uh, bear with me as I relay Ferlinghetti's words, words that I hope will be, will set a nice tone for tonight's discussion. Lawrence Ferlinghetti started this poem with two epigraphs from birth, one from Berthold Brecht and one from some Comandante Marcos. The first is from Berthold Brecht. What times are these when to write a poem about love is almost a crime because it contains so many silences about so many horrors? Berthold Brecht. We apologize for the inconvenience, but this is a revolution. Subcomandante Marcos. And now Lawrence Forlinghetti. I am signaling you through the flames. The North Pole is not where it used to be. Manifest destiny is no longer manifest. Civilization self-destructs. The goddess Nemesis is knocking at the door. What are poets for? in such an age. What is the use of poetry? If you would be a poet, create works capable of answering the challenge of apocalyptic times, even if this means sounding apocalyptic. You have to decide if bird cries are cries of ecstasy or cries of despair, by which you will know whether you are a tragic or a lyric poet. Conceive of love beyond sex. Be subversive, constantly questioning reality and the status quo. Strive to change the world in such a way that there is no further need to be a dissident. Read between the lives and write between the lines. 
Be committed to something outside yourself. Be passionate about it. But don't destroy the world unless you have something better to replace it. If you would snatch fame from the flames, where is your burning bow? Where, where are your arrows of desire? Where your wit on fire? The master class starts wars. The lower classes fight it. Governments lie. The voice of the government is often not the voice of the people. Speak up, act out. Silence is complicity. Be the gadfly of the state and also its firefly. And if you have two loaves of bread, do as the Greeks did. Sell one with the coin of the realm and with the coin of the realm, buy sunflowers. Wake up, the world's on fire. Have a nice day. Lawrence Berlinghetti, poetry as an insurgent act, a poet that will be missed, but hopefully who is present now as we start this discussion with a number of writers, editors, and venues for writing, not only in the poetic form, but I would say often in the comradely spirit that Ferlinghetti challenges us to live up to here. Um, I know it's a tough act, tough act to follow y'all, but that's what you got little Lawrence Ferlinghetti with us, and it's up to us to do, do his vision justice. Oh, um, so without any further ado, Camilla, we're gonna go first to you. Okay. And I know actually Month Your View has begun in recent years. I, I don't know if you had anything to do with this, but I've been noticing more poetry in your pages with Marge Piercy, another one of my favorite, you know, kind of long running leftist radical poets appearing in your pages. I'm not gonna ask you to talk about Marge Piercy yet, though that's bubbled up, but instead asking all of our guests, essentially a version of the same question, which is just to tell us about your respective organization. Tell us about Monthly Review. Uh, for those who aren't familiar, maybe for those who are, you know, your mission, as your organization sees it, as you see it, maybe a little bit of history for those of us who don't know you that well yet. Uh, if you wanna talk about your audience and what you see is the value that your work creates um, and the needs that Monthly Review serves. And again, that, that'll be a question we, we pitched to each of our guests to kind of get us started in terms of the positive mission of these great progressive media sources. Camila? Yes, yeah, so um, for those who may not be familiar, Monthly Review is an independent socialist magazine that started in May 1949. It's actually the oldest uh, still existing continuous independent socialist magazine in the US. Um, it came out of the 1948 Henry Wallace campaign, the third party campaign for president. Um, and the first issue featured as the big lead article, Why Socialism by Albert Einstein. Um, it was founded, you know, a few years after Winston Churchill's Iron Curtain speech um, during the beginning of the Cold War and repression against all lefty people and publications um, was raging. And the magazine um, began by publishing analyses of political economy, imperialism, and third world struggles that were happening at the time. And it drew on the rich um, legacy of Marxist thought without being bound to any kind of narrow view or party line. It was very clear and deliberate about its independence and still is. Um, and against these odds during the Cold War, um, the magazine's readership and influence grew steadily. And in around 1952, Monthly Review began, published its first book monthly, by Monthly Review Press, which was um, actually a book on the Korean War. Um, and then during the 1960s, um, in the fights against imperialism and capitalism more generally, MR, Monthly Review, um, started playing an increasingly global ro role 
Um, and in decades since we've kind of um, held on to that spirit and um, publish lots of things, including, including poetry um, against you know, the capitalist society that we live in and, and um, the crises that we are experiencing. So that's kind of about monthly review. I don't know if anyone else wants to jump in. Yeah, we could go, we could go next to Jason. Thank you, Camilla. That's great. I mean, it's so great to have monthly review on board for this. Jason? Let me put this on gallery so I feel like I'm talking to people <laughs> other than staring at myself. That's the way um, to do it. That's what I do. <laughs> I tell you, man. Um, hi again, folks. Um, so, all right. Our situation is a little bit, my colleagues and I, you know, our situation is a little bit complicated um, because we have two operations that we're running simultaneously. Um, um, Chris Ferrone, John Loftus, and myself run both. And then we have a cast of over 200, you know, writers and other talent, you know, working with us overall and growing as we have a lot of interns. Um, so Dick Boston is a 22-year-old metropolitan uh, so-called alternative newspaper. Okay, an independent newspaper. Um, and um, we acquired it um, in uh, June 2017, uh, sorry, a couple of years after we started the nonprofit that we also run, Boston Institute for Nonprofit Journalism, which started in June of 2015. And um, the mandate of DIG, I mean, it's a city newspaper, right? It's like if you've ever, heard of or read the Village Voice or the LA Weekly, which are now both deceased as least as at least as everyone knew them, right, then you kind of understand what we do. Um, I mean, we're essentially uh, a paper that under our leadership, at least, um, certainly leans left, I would say libertarian left overall. Um, I'm a socialist, but that's just shorthand for like regular people for saying I'm a libertarian socialist, whatever. Um, and um, we, uh, our audience at Dig Boston is an audience of working people, you know, working in middle class primarily, who read us in bars, who read us in coffee houses, who read us basically going to clubs. And even today in this digital age, picking up our newspapers, which we still print off of dead trees, out of boxes and, you know, corner stores and whatever around the city. And like, go, oh, here, there's a show over there. Let's go over there. There's a good, you know, there's a good, there's a good like, you know, dance party over there. Let's go over there. So we're a mix of hard investigative reporting, which we're known for, and um, fun stuff, arts and entertainment, which also can have a critical edge. The Boston Institute for Nonprofit Journalism was started originally to do long form investigative journalism that publications may be smaller than Dig Boston, which is about 40,000 circulation when we're not having a pandemic and have to cut our circulation in half. Um, you know, community papers, neighborhood papers, um, it's pro providing investigative journalism, syndicating to them around Massachusetts, not just Boston, um, you know, uh, stuff that they couldn't afford to produce themselves. And it too leans left in the sense that the kind of journalism that both these outfits is doing, you know, uh, if the arc of the universe, you know, bends towards justice, so do our publications, right? That's kind of what we're doing. And we're, you know, we're, what we do, the, I mean, the value we serve, I suppose, is kind of introducing people to the ideas of the broad left. I suppose you could look at it that way in the context of this conversation. But more to the point, you know, we're trying to get people discussing and debating issues of the day. And that's what news publications at their best do. Okay, I'll stop there because that's already too much. Yeah. 
Thanks, Jason. And again, I've been a reader and, and actually contributed to, to Dig Boston as well. I really appreciate the, the venue that you've, you've held open for so many of us. We'll, we'll get in deeper soon. Kurt, I think you're next here. Tell us about Portside. Okay, will do. But first, I have to say that was a beautiful poem by Ferlin Getty. And all day, uh, what's been going through my mind is the, his version of the Lord's Prayer, which is in the law, uh, the last waltz, where uh, thy Lord, hollow be thy name, and along the same themes. And Portside uh, did, just did uh, or ran an obituary of Ferlinghetti, and it's part of what we do. Portside's a collective, um, but a different kind of collective. Uh, it's a news aggregator of different views from across the left. We're a multiracial grouping. Uh, people have come out of different left-wing traditions, uh, have very different views as to what that means. And um, each day we post five articles um, on what's happening around the world or in our society. A moderator will choose his or her own articles. There's no attempt to, to impose a line. And often if you look at it day by day, you'll see different perspectives put forward. And the idea behind that is that in these times, we need to hear multiple perspectives and multiple points of view. And we need to go beyond, um, often in publications, you read the first sentence or two and you know exactly everything else that's gonna be in the issue. And the left has that problem as well. Um, so aside from the regular five uh, posts each day, we have a cultural uh, post regularly, does poetry. We also have articles on food. We often run articles on science and, and developments in science. We have a regular, uh, every day we have a labor post, which is, uh, I do it on Thursdays and you can kind of get a sense of my perspective if you see that. So, but the idea behind it is uh, to make use of technology. It's all um, online. It's a web service. We're able to reach far, far more people more rapidly than we ever could have in the various publications, print publications, as much as I work at a bookstore. So I'm a firm believer in paper, but we're able to reach far more people than we ever could have. And what we do is we scan through, sometimes we'll use articles from mainstream media. Sometimes we'll use articles from various left publications. We cover, take things from abroad, often. So it's to get that wide range that we live in the world, and it's to encourage a critical perspective and critical thinking, uh, which is so essential as we try to pierce through and understand how we move forward. So I'll just leave it at that, and we can get more detail later. That's great, Kurt. I really appreciate that, um, that emphasis on the foregrounding some of the differences of opinion and, and, and embracing that. We need to work through that rather than ignore it. That's really great. Uh, Joe, last but not least, Labor Press, bring us, bring us up to date. Uh, what's Labor Press about and what's your, what's your take on your mission? Yeah, so Labor Press has been around since about 2009. And since I've been there, uh, started in 2012, We've really tried to make it a worker-centric news outlet, multimedia platform that really focuses on the lives of everyday people. Mostly the way it's been trending, it's mostly really blue collar workers uh, centered on the tri-state area, but we really try to you know, do reach out nationally. Uh, when we're doing well, uh, sometimes we pop up in uh, 
on Kurt's site uh, now and then, and, uh, and we know we're, we're doing a good job. Uh, we're, a, we're a work in progress. You know, we're still trying to, to get out there and trying to uh, be uh, the, uh, the anti-corporate media that actually represents the lives of working people. That's pretty, pretty much it. Yeah, Joe, it's it's really great to have you here. And and as you all will have heard, just from the the opening kind of descriptions of these organizations, we we are um, boldly mi mixing some apples, some origin oranges, maybe some cantaloupe, some delicious kiwi. Uh, we have a mix of organizations that are that are more national or international in scope, that are a slightly more local. Of course, the local intersecting with the national and international. Um, some that are more overtly kind of committed to a, a socialist politics, others that are broad left or committed to kind of working people first. And the kind of political line is is perhaps a little more open or, or undefined or, or varied. So, I mean, I think we're, we're looking here at not, you know, may, uh, we're, our assumption in, in, start, in, in kind of framing the show is that there can be a cross-pollination from the different views. And in, in including both practical issues as well as, as uh, theoretical and, and kind of political questions. So uh, Linda has the next question for you. Okay, so um, can you each talk about the challenges and dangers that you see uh, left and progressive media facing in this moment, uh, perhaps with some concrete discussion of how these obstacles and forces have played out in your own media organization or publications? Sorry, same order or pop? Yeah, let's do the same order, you know, just so people know what's coming. <laughs> yes, okay, okay, same, same order, yes. So, um, Camilla. Um, okay, so I guess maybe this is an obvious point, but left publishing is of course not immune to the oppressive relations in our society. So questions around racism, questions around sexism, all those things are all very real and play out in spaces like ours, just like they do outside of them. Uh, but another thing that I think is not unrelated um, is some of the kind of tendencies towards insularity uh, and that milieu and certain milieus that can form around certain kind of publications. Um, and something that Monthly Review has done very consciously in order to mitigate against this is that we place great importance on unsolicited, unsolicited submissions. Um, so for a monthly magazine, we take our, our unsolicited submissions very seriously <laughs> compared to other publications. And most of our articles that we publish actually come from people we haven't reached out to and asked um, them to write something. Of course, we also publish um, people who you know, have written for us before who reach out to us on a personal level. Uh, but for the most part, it's people who go to our website and use our text box form to submit um, their drafts. And this is, I think, particularly important um, you know, for newer activists, younger scholars, new writers, especially writers of color, you know, women, queer writers, people who may not have those connections to people from kind of established publications that can get their article through the kind of editorial process. Um, so that's just like one concrete example. Um, yeah, I guess I'll, I'll leave it at that for now. All right, that's, that's really interesting that uh, Monthly Review places so much emphasis on unsolicited submissions. That's that's not true of so many publications that I know of. So, so that's that's really great. That's a really great way to break out of, of the insularity 
of, um, of so many publications on the left. Okay, so um, Jason. Yes, I'm. <laughs> Shall I address the question as well? Yes. Okay. Um, I think the main challenge that um, certainly news media uh, like Dick Boston uh, and uh, community and independent newspapers all over the country are facing and in many other countries as well is the rolling destruction of said news media. It's, you know, the, the ongoing process of media consolidation, so-called, in other words, giant um, uh, over-financialized corporations that are um, buying up all the media they can at all levels and uh, squeezing uh, this media for profit while cutting staff, cutting, 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 having less and less relevant, you know, um, news of the day in these publications and then tossing away these publications like, you know, like garbage uh, as soon as they feel like they're not making enough profit anymore. And um, uh, while there are a rising number of nonprofit news outlets and our nonprofit among other things is a news outlet, um, uh, there, there aren't that many. I mean, most uh, uh, metro newspapers like us, most um, you know, newspapers that serve cities and towns and counties around the US are commercial. You know? like, and we can put quotes around this because even major commercial news publications, news outlets, um, are uh, certainly print ones are, are losing money hand over fist um, and, and being winnowed in the way I describe. So, um, you know, it's not just the smaller papers that are broke. But for all that, um, you know, for all the problems of, of this news media that I just very roughly described, um, uh, that, and these are historic problems, certainly for those of us on the left, like I like everyone else here, you know, assuming a lot of you are on the left or you're all on the left, left of the Democrats, whatever, have raged at my local media to the extent I paid attention to it. Um, just not getting uh, what left social movements were doing right at all or being either uninterested in covering it or self-censoring because various corporate masters, various rich advertisers just wouldn't want it. Right, so just our voices often weren't there to begin with, but to the extent that they were, and to the extent that, that this level of news media, especially the local news media I'm describing, is kind of an agora, a place for discussion and debate, a place where communities talk to each other, it is going away. So my group, both the commercial newspaper and the nonprofit, are directly engaged in a the, the commercial paper is trying to stay alive. Just staying alive is a victory, especially during the pandemic, but in general. And B, you know, we're creating a hybrid economic model where we have a commercial newspaper that's linked through three people, essentially, who run both operations to a nonprofit. And the nonprofit, we're directly organizing, we're doing essentially community organizing in a city just north of Boston, Somerville, Massachusetts. 88,000 people, quite a diverse city. Used to be a big white ethnic working class city now it's diverse in different ways, including class for better or worse. Um, but its news infrastructure is collapsing and we are engaged in directly trying to save it through projects like our new Somerville Wire, which is a news service for the city. And I, again, I don't have time. I'm just giving people a taste here, but um, th these are the challenges that, that 
many, many, many news organizations are facing, whether they're left, center, or right in editorial orientation. And uh, we really can't afford to lose any of them, except for like, you know, Nazis or whatever. But, you know, like your, your typical conservative local newspaper, your typical liberal one, your typical left-leaning one, all of these are valuable. All of these are in trouble and we've lost many of them already. So that's our, that's our big concern. Okay. Um, yeah, that's, that's kind of depressing, but, um, but thanks for, <laughs> yeah. for, um, for laying out the, uh, the map of, um, of newspapers. Well, yeah, and it's also um, kind of scary too, just to jump in briefly, which is that, you know, I mean, the, the, the notion, the, the mention of the Nazis at the end, you know, but I mean, the question, what flows into that vacuum, right, that's being opened up, I mean, maybe it's something we can, we can talk right. about later, right, when, when what's left is like the mega church and Fox News in a lot of local, well, areas. and just, you know, you know so I mean, the corporate social media that we need to have many other shows like this about, right? You know? Right, 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 which this is, I hope, not the, not the last show we'll do on this directly media topic, but uh, just, I mean, I think there's a link there, I just wanted to jump in there, yeah, Linda, back to you. Okay. All right. So, um, so we have Kurt. Uh, what are the um, challenges and dangers that you see left in progressive media facing in this moment? And okay. uh, can you can you provide some concrete examples in your own organization? Sure, but I want to first say uh, with Camila just to note that Monthly Review published something unsolicited by me years ago when I was a guest of the state, to use a certain phrase, of the time. And um, uh, it was very, very hard for me to find an outlet. And I'll always be deeply appreciative of that. So uh, so it's true. And it's, it's hard for publications to do that. That re relates to uh, us at Portside, by the way, as well. We get lots and lots and lots of unsolicited submissions very few of which we're able to use. Uh, also in part because it's not as though we have an editorial committee that chooses things, but each moderator uh, does it on, again, as an individual. And often I know, like I look at labor press, I look at um, in these times, I'll look at labor notes, I'll look at uh, different official union publications. Um, and then different overseas publications to choose which one I'll do for a labor post on a particular Thursday. And so it's hard to fit them all in. But in terms of the substance of the question, I mean, the, the, the key is twofold. One, reaching more people, right? We're uh, a source on the left, port side, that's what it means. But we need to introduce, and we recognize a need to reach out beyond the familiar, beyond the comfortable, and also to really ensure that our audience and our responses and the people that we're engaged with are genuinely multiracial and also multi-generational. The sort of nature of the work that we do, by and large, most of us tend a little older just because younger people are more directly engaged and active, right? But it's, that's a key problem. Um, also, we do this as an all volunteer effort and that is what enables it to work. Um, if we had staff, we'd be far less um, possible to do so. Oh, and by the way, yes, Victor Wallace did on the chat and 
health, uh, yes, they also published, in fact, an article by me that uh, on the German Democratic Republic and socialism that I was deeply grateful for as well. It was sort of closer towards my coming home and and I've been in touch with Victor since then. So and for those of, who don't know, just jumping in for those who don't know, if there's anyone who doesn't know, Victor Wallace is the, you know, was a longtime uh, head of, is still very much a, a leader of socialism and democracy, though he's now editor. Um, what, what is its formal title now of Victor? Jump in. You're, you're muted. Editor at large. I can read lips apparently. Uh, but Socialism and Democracy, which actually is a sponsoring organization, a co-sponsoring organization of this of this uh, broadcast as well. Sorry, back to you, Kurt. No, no, no. And and thank you, Victor, for the reminder. And thank you for that. But just to not take too much time, but, you know, we have our difficulties and, and our challenges in reaching out to people. Also, the fact is that while we... Um, encourage a multiplicity of views within our ranks it doesn't mean there are intentions. Trust me, the discussions around the elections, especially in 2016, this one, I think there was more unanimity that we had to get rid of the, uh, the uh, I, I can't use the words that I would come to mind in polite language for a former office holder. But the point is there was less about that, but Often there are, and that's something that's a part of the process. But the bigger thing is, um, and relates to what the uh, previous, um, what's been said, is structurally um, there is a dumbing down of choices and options in our society. That's where what's led our country into the morass that we're in. And so to fight against that is fighting against the grain. I think that's what left activism is all about, not just uh, in publications, but in our activity to get people to think critically uh, about what their options truly are and how they can engage. And so I'll just leave it at that. All right, great. Thank you so much, Kurt. Um, Joe, uh, challenges, uh, dangers? Yeah, I, I apologize for the mask. I'm actually in a, a common area in my building. And it's, and it's usually pretty empty, but it just uh, started to fill up. So I hope you can hear me. We can hear you fine, Joe. And uh, we, Great. We, res we respect you for respecting the common space. Great. So yeah, I mean, the biggest, the biggest challenge for, for me personally, for everybody at Labor Press, is uh, escaping the corporate master. How do we continue to do journalism? Uh, you know, while making a living. It's as simple as that. I mean, I'm here because I don't want to be at the Daily News. I don't want to be at the New York Times. You know, that was never a goal for me. Uh, you know, people that, that I work with are really, you know, outstanding top-notch journalists who don't want to don't want to be in that kind of environment. But how do you do that? You know, Labor Press, was, you know, we're still figuring it out. We're still trying trying to figure out how to survive, how to produce revenue streams for us to keep us going. Uh, you know, there's revenue streams that I would not, personally, I don't want, but, you know, I'm not the publisher, uh, uh, you know, of, of the outlet. But uh, so, so there, there's that, there's that nuts and bolts issue. And then it's just trying to, to reach people I think we have a clear vision of what we want to do. We want to break down the silos that working people put themselves in and get the teacher and the construction worker to realize they're in the same boat. 
And, you know, just thinking New York City, that's, that's, a, that's a tall order to do something like that. Uh, but yeah, so we just, we just keep plugging our way and, and hopefully we're, we're hanging in there and, and we, can, we can do that. Yeah, Joe, I mean, I think that's a, you hit a number of, I mean, really sharp points there. I mean, the, obviously the resisting, the finding a way around outside the, the corporate masters, as you put it, but also this, uh, this issue of breaking down silos, right, among working people themselves, right, and, and that, that, uh, that project, uh, you know, I, I mean, I transitioned to our third question. I, I mean, this is for all of you, and I'll go, go back to, to, to Camila first. Uh, but really, I hope you all can be thinking about it. You know, I, we'd like to, you to think, you know, what are the strategies and approaches that you or your organization are developing, um, you have developed or still struggling with, um, not only to resist or avoid the threats that are coming and keep, uh, kind of keep what you're, you've been doing going, but also to turn kind of dangers of the present crisis into opportunities, right? Um, you know, what can the left and progressive media be doing to strengthen its position in, in this society? Is there an opportunity here to, to, to flip, you know, to flip the script? And also, I, I actually welcome um, all of you as you go through to, to, you know, get concrete. I mean, we don't want to go into the weeds, but, you know, if you, know, if you can highlight, you know, where you've seen like those moments, uh, I don't want to say they're exception to the rule or maybe, you know, but like the, the, the whether you mean positively or negatively, like, something like a particular example that speaks to the broader situation you're in, you know, like, like a, you know, story that you didn't think was going to, you know, make it through that did, you know, or, or a different kind of contributor, a different kind of audience, um, a different kind of story or approach um, that has helped, whether it's breaking out of one of those silos that, that both of you, you know, a number of you referenced in different ways. Um, but, you know, again, what, what are the approaches and strategies you're using uh, right now, or that you think maybe we need to think about, maybe something that hasn't been tried yet uh, in your organization, but that you individually are are thinking about as a, as a possibility for for you know confronting or or evading or you know working through some of these these uh, challenges of the present, Camila. Um, so something I wanted to add to kind of the dimension of what we've been talking about. I'm sorry if this evades the question, but actually a kind of optimistic um, story of left presses in particular during um, the coronavirus crisis. Um, after the kind of initial dip at the beginning of the pandemic where all of like the independent left presses were like, you know, we don't know if we're going to survive this. I don't know if we'll be around in four months. Like we don't know what this is going to look like. After that initial dip in like March and April, we've actually done better than ever. Um, like at MR at Monthly Review Press, for example, the the book sales for January of this year were something like double that of last year. And I know for a fact that those trends are similar in other left um, publishers. And uh, I think that's just because people, you know, there's an acute crisis, there's the Black Lives Matter protest, um, the economy, obviously, <laughs> our governments have been lying to us and are just sending us to die. Like people are actually hungry for literature that can speak to this moment and to what we're going through. And I think it has really shown and lots of the kind of events such as this one, but also put on by things like Haymarket Books and other kind of presses, like those big kind of webinar panels, those get, you know, it got more people than kind of like Trump's inauguration, you know, like 
like hundreds, thousands of people are, are logging into them. Um, and I think you can actually also see this strangely in, in trade publishing and kind of more mainstream presses. You know, bookstores were out of stock of how to be anti-racist. Bookstores, Barnes Noble was out of stock of, so you want to talk about race um, after the May protests. Um, so I think it, it, there is kind of some hope in that actually literature about politics is what people want. And they know that, you know, we know that we are owed it and deserve it. And I think people are, are doing that. So hopefully that um, is more optimistic than, you know, the rest of reality. Yeah, no, I mean, I appreciate that pushback. I'm not trying to frame things like, okay, it's doom and gloom, but you know, do you have any any good news? Um, no, I mean, I think that's that's really kind of exciting. I mean, it's, for those who missed it, you know, double doubling, uh, you know, kind of uh, the book sales after initial dip, uh, monthly review, and, and echoed in other places. That's, I mean, that's it makes perfect sense, right? Um, in terms of people's need and desire for engaging with a, with a deeper level of analysis. Um, you know, Jason, uh, how do things look from from your angle? Obviously, I mean, a, a kind of a different kind of publication, different kind of venue. Um, so what, what do you feel like about strategies and approaches that you, you've been using, that you're thinking about using, uh, you know, lessons that you're learning from, from the challenges of this, of this present moment? I mean, you got a few hours. I mean, like, this is all we talk about. All we do is try to grapple with these challenges. <laughs> right. A very nice word for a very dire situation, right? Um, I mean, look, I, I, let me start with what everybody else can do, right? If you're on the left, wherever you are out there in people land, you know, I think most of you are in, are in the US, you know? So um, I explained, right, that we're seeing the rolling collapse of all news media. Yes, I said that. Um, and we on the left are used to doing a lot with not much, okay? So like a lot of people have some experience with at least running newsletters or maybe some kind of local paper, maybe a campus paper, whatever. You've taken a journalism class or two. You know, you've taken a writing class or two. Well, it's, it's an opportunity to like try to grab some of these outlets while they're crashing and burning and revive them, start new outlets, okay? This would be very helpful in this moment like if the left is smart enough to try to be the people that are filling the information vacuum, like the, the signal versus the noise of the Twitterverse, of the chatterverse, right? Like to, to be the people that are looking for truth in as, and I said this in our rehearsal, in as much, I know we're, we're post-postmodern, you know, in as much as one can even, you know, like I, I apprehend a truth or truths, trying to get close to them, doing it, right, in your community, then you should you should take that opportunity. It's it's I mean what everything we do is a lot of work anything anyway. Everything we on the left do is underfunded anyway. Why not do this? This is a conversation we're not going to have a chance to get into. I don't think much today unless it comes up in questions. It came up in rehearsal. You know like why why does the left not get media? <laughs> you know like this is a especially at the local and regional level. Like why is there this? Why does the left want only instrumental media, only propaganda outlets? Why does it not understand the, the importance of having a broad and long dialogue and discourse with all kinds of communities of interest? And why not be the people that, that you know, run the venues that do this, right? So that's strategically, 
from 40,000 feet. That's what I would like to see people do. We are doing it with both Big Boston and Binge, but I mean, it's just, it's too much. We're doing so many things that I, I don't want to just be like, oh, we're doing like this thing and that thing. It's not like that. We're doing 24 seven. We're like, how do we help the news media to survive in our corner of the US and of the world? And how do we grow it? And how do we pull more people in? How do we have an incredibly diverse crew covering an incredibly diverse arrays of, array of communities and doing it well, right? And, and trying to have people that believe in democracy, human rights, you know, the rule of law, social justice, you know, dominating the conversation in our neck of the woods. Jason, I, I know we're planning to get into this a little later, but I do want to, you know, since you brought it up now to kind of, you know, kind of give you a chance to dig in while it's fresh here. I mean, you know, this, this point about the, the left or some parts of the left seeing, you know, media as more as instrumental, you know, as kind of a, I was thinking, you know, just as a bullhorn for the moment rather than, yeah. uh, you know, a, a longer term project. I mean, again, I can't help but think of, uh, you know, right before the show, we were, we were talking about another fallen comrade, uh, Leo Panich, that Monthly Review actually has a, a really great, you know, their their um, their editorial statement this month or last month, I guess, or it's, I guess they have a March issue coming out. It's still this month, technically. Um, you know, talking about, you know, one thing I, I took from Leo Panich's work is the need for socialists to cultivate uh, like a 50 year view, right? That idea, you know, the institution building rather than just, you know, kind of chasing, uh, That's right. you know, I don't want to just say, ch you know, chasing ambulances and putting out fires, but you know what I mean? A shift in temporal kind of perspective. Could you just, could you, I mean, since you brought it up, could you say a little more about that, about like how, what patterns you see? I'm not asking you to name names, you know, but like <laughs> pattern, you know, but you can if you want, but you know, um, I'm not, I'm not saying you can't, um, but you know, in terms of like a framework, you know, we have a lot of left folks on this call, and I'm sure be watching this. You know, like what you know, what do you flag as like, uh, you know, um, you know, kind of issues that that we, you know, where we could people could change their their orientation besides just like literally sending you an op-ed, you know, which I'm sure you'd welcome as well. I feel like, look, I mean, I feel like decades back, and again, no rose-colored glasses here. I'm not trying to say everything was wonderful, you know, 50, 60 years ago and terrible now, that's not the case. But think about it this way. We had like, I, I have academic leftists like call me an organic leftist all the time as like an, as an epithet. It's like, well, fuck you, first of all. But second of all, um, you know, most prominent people on the left in, at the local level, certainly back in the day were organic. They were working people that, you know, sort of develop their intellectual faculties together through the organizations they formed and stuff like that. But they weren't just isolated, essentially, in those organizations and those quasi-movements or whatever. They were, they were out there. People knew them on the street, just like they might know some right-wing politician, like they were known. And they were interested in facing outward to everybody around them, not just to the people that agreed with them. And they engaged in debate like all the time, like for good or bad, they were doing it, right? So you could look at it, that, that's kind of how I think about the way, what the left is missing with how we, we're dealing with not just news media, but media in general. Like there seems to be almost a lack of desire to get in, you know, like to, to, to debate, you know, to, to um, really engage with all kinds of people, right? Like all the time not in every media. Like, I'm not gonna suggest Monthly Review or Jacobin or The Nation or in these times, I think these larger national and international level publications with, you know, 
where you get, where there's a lot of, um, especially with the journals or the, well, I don't know, what do we call monthly review, Camila, <laughs> these A days. magazine. Okay, a magazine, good, yeah. yeah. So I like, think. and at that level, like, you're getting a lot of top flight intellectuals, like really trying to refine ideas on the left. And that's an important thing to do in that space. That's what the space is for. It's also as a magazine rather than a journal, trying to popularize those ideas. This is very important. And, and I've, I've never seen monthly review on the scene as much as I've seen it out there in the last two or three years, I gotta say. Like, I'm like, wow, new crew, okay. You know, like, so that's great, right? But it's not the same as like a Dig Boston. Right. Like we, you know, we are like a paper that everybody reads. We have a significant right wing audience and we want that. Like we want them sending in their opinion pieces, but we also want the left paying. Like this is what you wanted me to talk about. What I, what I was complaining about in rehearsal is like the left doesn't want to debate, it seems, with our various antagonists and with all the fence sitters that we're supposedly trying to organize. And in failing to do this, we don't exist. You know, like we may think we're growing and okay, we're growing, but the population's also growing and growing and growing, hundreds of millions of people in some countries, billions. Like we can't just leave all these people and all these parts of the country that we don't normally reach, like let them lie fallow because guess who pops up in those spaces? Fascists pop up in those spaces, you know? I'll stop. Uh, but, yeah. yeah, no, Jason, I think that's a, a, a really great punctuating moment to end on. I mean, not end, but, you know, uh, to, to move, move on. Um, I mean, it seems, I mean, one thing here, and I mean, maybe we can come back to this later, but, you know, different funding models, right, and different, you know, also put you in a different position to, like, experience the public, right? I know, you know, we were doing a little, you know, Linda actually was, was doing more research before the show on kind of, you know, the, the kind of your various web pages and how you describe and how you sustain, you know, a monthly review has like thousands, like several thousands of like sustainers, right? You have like people who are committed to the mission who are like thus willing to fund a particular kind of politics, ideolo ideological, methodological. And, and Dig Boston is like really try. I mean, as I understand it, right. I mean, is, is, is trying to operate off of its current, like build and sustain a mass base. So, in the city of Boston, right? It not doesn't have that kind of. I imagine. I mean, not that you would turn down, you know, you know, Noam Chomsky, Noam Chomsky sending you a big check or something, right? But like, but you're 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 in some ways compelled, right, to to engage with where people are at on, you know, a broad, you know, in broadly, right? To to and you don't want to write off anyone, and that actually creates, I think, a really important opportunity for the left more broadly to think about. Well, like, what do we have to say to these people, the people who are actually likely to be drawn into the Trumpist? You know the MAGA orbit, right? We can't just ignore them and say, well, you know, we have enough people on the left to sustain us, and that'll be good, and we can sell books to those folks, which is crucial. But you're, in a little way, you're in touch with that. I'm not trying to, you know, invite you to another eloquent statement, but I don't know. Is that I'm, I'm hearing that? I don't know. Is that is that something that seems to be something you're 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 experiencing very viscerally? I mean, I feel like we should probably move past me because I'm very worried that we're not going to get to my yeah 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 to yeah, my yeah. colleagues. I we mean, knew but, you had a lot to say. No, we're going to go to Kurt in a moment. Kurt, I mean, I think it sounds like you know your publication is dealing with some of these things too. I mean, this this issue of the danger of insularity. Uh, you know, it seems like you've structurally built that into your publication itself in some way. Your 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 kind of uh, you know your your platform. Um, could you could you say a little more? I mean, about what strategies or approaches you feel like have been working, or mm -hmm. or frankly, you know, things you know. 
obstacles that are still that are not going away that we that you need some new kind of thought on and and, and what you know what are the questions uh, that you're that you think you're facing right now right I mean there I mean the, this sort of is the nub of everything but let me just give one example of something that I did that sort of goes to the what we're trying to do it and in this respect I'll say that what uh, Joe does with labor press I think is extremely important we did um, after the January 6 um, coup attempt in DC. We ran a long article with statements by almost every union that we could find denouncing what took place. Some of them did so in traditional terms of defending American democracy. Some of them did so with a more profound uh, critique of, the, you know, implicitly without using the word U.S. capitalism. But we ran, we ran about 30 or 40 of them. And then one union, not a left union, the media person reached out said, why didn't you include us? Well, because I hadn't seen the statement. So we included it in. But in other words, there was something where those unions were looking at what we're doing and putting it out and getting people who typically, including on the left, oh, unions, they're just this or that, or bureaucratic and scholastic and you know irrelevant. And there's all of that in the labor movement, no doubt. But okay, but now look at what is actually being said and what the potential is there and vice versa. If somebody in the labor movement um, sees that and it gets circulated around and every now and then does, then they'll also see like we just had a long uh, article posted by Herb Boyd on the new uh, The Less Pains biography of Malcolm. Uh, there are articles about Venezuela and about China and about other matters that that are more fundamentally critiqued. So that's that to me is where we bring things in. You, you work, you try to find a way to make what you're doing relevant and germane to organizations doing the work. And that your hope that in the course of doing this, they find something not just to fill the immediate need, but also to pose and to think again, okay, this is something that, um, um, is striking me in a different way. So for to me, the question of media can't be separated from the question of organization, right? That if you don't have, networks alone can only take you so far, right? If we have, um, you know, I see Tim Sheard's on the phone with um, his, uh, with Hardball Press, right? If, if I was younger and back in the labor movement in a position, you'd ask the education departments, order some of these books. Right. Order some of these books and have a discussion about it. And maybe, you know, that is what you're trying to do at every step of the way. And so and we try and do that in different ways. So people were very involved on the West Coast with, um, um, you know, some of the activities and movements that younger people involved in around Black Lives Matter, around the movements there. And it's how then. Will they look at an article that's coming from left field or from right field or from a different field within that? So that to me is, I'm not pessimistic, but it is an enormous task before us to move from thousands to millions. No question about it. But the only way we can do it is by constantly broadening and constantly developing our own line of critical thinking that we need to look beyond our gut response. Why are so many people tending towards fascism, right? Why? Why are so many good people just dropping out? I don't mean on the left, 
I mean, people are struggling with this and the other thing, I work at a bookstore, restaurant, young people, great, you know, but they don't have time for this. I mean, you know, you have a couple of kids, you're working three, four jobs to get together. You know, most of them didn't register to vote. All of them like Bernie, right? But I don't think anybody voted in the primaries, right? It just wouldn't occur to them. How do we move from that? And then, you know, you get your occasional person in there and a friend of mine writes me from a uh, old friend who lives in the suburbs of Milwaukee. And, you know, somebody tried to drive him off the road because he had a Biden sticker on the back of his car, you know, because to them, you know, I mean, it, because you're a militia country. So it's, it's, but none of these are our enemy. I mean, some are in the moment, but the enemy is corporate capital. And how do you do that? And no quick and easy, no quick and easy answer. It's true. 50 year plan, but people also live in the moment. And how do we, Bloch actually talked about the near and the far. And that's what we constantly have to do with our own work right in the media and the press. I don't know if that answers your response to it, but that's that's kind of how I see it anyway, you know, as part of our yeah, project. Yeah, thank you, Kurt. May I ask you, Kurt, does your group, I mean, you mentioned that the portside editors, moderators, you know, have diverse views and, and, and you know, you welcome that dispute or, you know, that's kind of structurally built in. But do you agree on that premise you said a moment ago that, the, you know, the enemy, uh, in terms of how you identify the enemy? You have agreement there that there's a need to struggle actively for, you know, some of the the potentially uh, wayward uh, working class folks, or is that itself a, a side a side? Yeah, of it's definitely right, and that's and that. I mean, I wouldn't say it's a fundamental disagreement, but obviously there's a tension there, right? Yep. You know, it's no different than if my I mean, my focus is on the labor movement, always has been, and if you're functioning within the labor movement, then you're functioning with a broad diverse of people, some whose points of view are quite uh, racist and reactionary, some whose points of view are extremely militant, but on focus, everything in between. If I'm engaged in community organizing, then my whole focus is very, very different of necessity because it's getting the community engaged and involved and, and the enemy coming in is, is very different. Um, and so, I mean, to me, that's a creative and positive tension. I would, I, that, in fact, that's why I value about it because we're not sitting around and saying we have to do this or we have to do that. And so you'll noticing uh, some people's mm -hmm. posts will always be posting things where, yeah, that, that third of the population screw them. They can go to hell. I don't care about them. Other people are looking in a more, you know, how do we mm -hmm. counteract that? Not that I'm going to convince some of these jerks who came up to DC, but the milieu, the mindset has to be challenged. But again, yes, we would absolutely, we have a quarterly phone call where we discuss this and right, definitely distinct points of view around that. And um, yeah. Yeah, uh, really interesting, Kurt. Um, and you mentioned the labor movement and you know the, the challenges of working you know, with, uh, within the labor movement, with the labor movement, the, the, and the union movement, which we shouldn't you know, uh, mm -hmm. conflate with the labor movement, of course, uh, very few workers in this country in particular have a union representing them, um, let alone a, a union with a class struggle perspective fighting for them in a robust way. Uh, and I speak as a union member who's been part of, you know, an effort to try to democratize and, and, and make and mobilize our own union at UMass Boston, a faculty staff union, MTA. Um, yeah. So uh, let's go. Let's go to Joe. Joe, I mean, what do you see as as challenges um, 
and or the opportunity, rather the, the opportunities that are implicit in the challenges, strategies that y'all are trying out that have worked or that you think might be necessary, you know, the opportunities, the cracks in the in the walls we're facing. And I do want to, as, as Joe's answering, I also would like to put a call out to all our, you know, the great folks on this live Zoomcast. Uh, we will be opening it up to you very shortly in terms of questions and comments. So please indicate whether it's in the chat box or with a raised hand, many of you I know, many of you I don't, uh, but we're happy to call on you for a question or a comment. Speak out of your experience. I mean, what would you like to see? What's the media that you would like to be creating, that you are creating? That, um, you know, what, what are the, um, the problems that you see in the, le in the left media that's out there or the left's relationship to media here? We're not trying to put a couple of experts on, you know, to cover everything. We know that you're a resource and you have much experience in this. So please, please do indicate in the chat box to help us make sure we don't miss you as we move towards question and comment uh, in just a few minutes. But first, Joe. Uh, yeah, so just thinking about strategies, the only way that I know how to do it is if you're trying to reach people, the main thing you have to do is you have to pay attention to. It. So you have to, what are they interested in? They're interested in seeing themselves, they're interested in seeing people that they know. So you could intellectualize and you could talk about theoretical ideas and, and different kinds of traditions, but you're not going to reach most people that way. You can reach them by focusing on them, looking at their lives, looking about what they go through, what their, what their challenges are. And, and in that way, you put the focus on them, they're, paying, they're in turn are gonna pay attention to you, to, to, to what you have to say and, and look at where you're coming from. Um, at Libra Press, you know, I think about you know, who, are, who is our audience? It's, uh, if you work for a living, that's who we want to reach, you know. So then, you know, the potential audience should be unlimited. Uh, you know, it doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter where you come from. If you have to get up in the morning and, and, and do something to make something happen or to put food on the table, that's who we want to reach. That's who, who we're paying attention to. I think that's the, the, the most effective strategy that we could have. Of course, you know, on the flip side of that is when you're trying to be independent, you're, you're trying to do things outside the corporate structure. You know, right now, people are being deplatformed. People are, 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 are losing whatever outlet they have, you know, it's straight up censorship. So you could talk about all the strategies that, that you want. And once you get to be, you know, reach an effective level, it's just coming down with censorship. So you got to, you got to deal with that after that. Joe, could you say a little more about that? What we mean by deplatforming and censorship in this context? I know that that that's a term that you know that people are using in different ways. I'd just like to get a little sense of what you're you're meaning. I think it's a very important topic, actually, and uh, yeah. Jason touched on it. I think earlier uh, implicitly. Um, yeah, Joe. Yeah, I mean, just look at any any anybody you like on YouTube, you know, who, who might be a progressive voice. They're finding that their stuff being demonetized. If not, you know, outright deplatformed, being demonetized, Twitter shutting down accounts. You know, this this is this is the kind of things happen right now. You you could strategize and you could do everything right and you could be really inventive and creative and, and build an audience, but then you know people start paying attention, then they bring the hammer down on you. All right, Joe. You know, I appreciate hearing that. 
Um, and I think this is, I mean, there's definitely some inter interest in the chat box about that topic. You know, I think, you know, Linda and I have been uh, rapidly texting back and forth. You know, we have a couple more questions for audience. Like, you know, by before the end of the show, we always like to give our listeners and viewers uh, some concrete things they can do. I mean, literally, we don't discourage self-promotion, organizational promotion, because if you're on the left and you're doing good work, then your self-promotion is not just self-promotion. There's some other inside yourself, which is, you know, the kind of self that we shouldn't discourage, in my opinion. Um, but we do want to open it up now because we, we have a promise we made to, to open things up at eight and hear some other voices here. And then, of course, to give our great panel a chance to respond and to be nurtured by and nourished by some of these uh, great, you know, great comments we're about to get. So I see two hands from folks I, that are new to Shelter and Solidarity, I think. I'm going to I like to call on them. And then I know we have a couple producers with questions as well. Um, Kiana, I'd love to call on you. And then Garrett, maybe we'll take two at a time. Uh, and then maybe even a third, actually, Victor Wallace, can I call on you for a comment? Victor Wallace has been working this terrain for quite a while, um, a dear comrade. Let's go to Kiana, Garrett, and Victor. Uh, I'm sorry, Kiana, Garrett, and Rachel. Victor, you'll be the next round. You get a chance to think. Uh, Kiana, Garrett, and Rachel, who already had indicated a question. Kiana? Hi, everybody. Um, nice to meet you guys. I am in Professor Liu's class. Um, so I just asked the question, um, what suggestions do you have for people wanting to join the movement in these smaller platforms of media? And um, what are uh, what substantive topics do your viewers tend to tune in for more? Great, great two questions there. That's really important. Garrett. Garrett, are you unmuted? Garrett, are you there? Uh, I'm here. Okay. Um, okay, good. Sorry. Um, yeah, I, I, I didn't realize I was going to come on that soon. So uh, my question is, um, I, I think one of the obstacles to uh, reaching a, I guess, more diverse audience and a non-left, more populist audience is that left media itself um, has a relationship to a certain wing of corporate America through the foundations who, who fund it. Um, you know, there's all kinds of major left places like The Nation and Mother Jones and even Democracy Now!, and even ironically, fairness and accuracy in reporting who are getting, who are reliant on funding from the Ford Foundation and Carnegie and Rockefeller and Merck and, uh, you know, the Lannan Foundation, ironically, which is a family that uh, helped overthrow Allende with the CIA to install Pinochet in 1973. And I, th I think people who are outside the left see uh, a sort of they're, they're aware of these relationships and they see a certain reluctance to criticize what I would call the left wing of capital. Um, and I'm wondering if you feel there ought to be more self-criticism of relationship with uh, billionaire foundations like this. And do you have any ideas to get out of that funding dependency? Okay, thanks for that, Garrett. Really, really interesting. I'm sure that our panel will have some thoughts on that. And then we're going to bring in Rachel. 
uh, for a third question. I think three is enough at a time. We'll go back to the panel and then we'll take another. I know we already have a couple other hands up, which is great. Rachel. Rachel's who I should also mention is the newest co-producer of Shelter and Solidarity and also a UMass Boston student. Um, so you all are from like a really wide variety of different outlets and some of them lend themselves um, more easily to social media than others. And I'm wondering how you think um, different outlets can most effectively use social media without it becoming homogenized with everyone producing content that's like optimized for social media and clicks um, and how we can keep um, like the academic silo uh, or like, sorry, stop how the academic silo of media and like the sort of entertainment side of media have become so separate with very little overlap and how we can address that. Okay, great. So we have uh, more than three questions, really. The three questions contained at least four or five questions, which is welcome. Um, how to get more involved from Kiana? What are the popular topics that, that people actually want more of, which I think is, is all, the, what about funding sources? What about the, the perception and or reality of the left as, as being uh, a left wing of capital? The funding source issue, uh, and, and and then and then you know Rachel's question, which you just heard. Um, I know some of you may want to speak more to one question than another, but let's let's try it in order. Uh, Camilla, do you have you want to step into one of these? Oh, um, sorry, I thought we were going to take more questions and then come back at the end. Uh, well, no, well, we could take. I mean, more we'll than take twelve. A more than 12, right? Three more questions. Than three. Well, how about let's just kick it to the panel in general uh, and let people. But just... sure, I can. Yeah, you, you, I'm sure you can. Okay, yeah. <laughs> um, in terms of popular topics, um, something that Monthly Review I think is different than a lot of the media that's represented by my other panelists is that we don't have like a an immediate publication, right? It, it takes several months to produce an issue. We're several months ahead. So something that gets published in April has been you know, finalized in January. So there's not like a lot of room to respond immediately to current events, which is something very different from what other people are saying in terms of um, their publications. But in terms of popular topics that we get, it's kind of like what you would accept, ex expect, like, um, very popular topics on um, racism, education is a popular topic. Um, any kind of analysis of, of COVID has been very popular recently. Um, so I think kind of like what we would call like evergreen topics usually do very well. Um, but, you know, more people could probably have more insight into this. Uh, in terms of social media, I this is something that Monthly Review is currently struggling with and is trying to figure out. We recently started posting more on Instagram. So I actually have a question for everybody else uh, about social media because we're kind of still working on that from our end. And I recently just found out on TikTok that Gen Zers think uh, side parts and hair are dorky. So I feel like I really have to revisit everything I know. Um, <laughs> So if any audience members has any ideas or advice or suggestions or tips about social media and reaching a broader, younger audience, I am all ears. Oi. 
No, I mean, yeah, no, it's no, pretty, that, no. I mean, I do. Yeah. <laughs> you have to be true to yourselves first and foremost. Okay. I mean, yes, we all make certain accommodations to eat the, the form, the structure of each media platform, but you know, you got it. Like we do long form investigative pieces that take up to two years sometimes. Okay. We're not going to make that into a little meme, you know, a little tidy quote with a funny picture. Like it, you know, we will, we will do things in the various social media spaces that attract people, that, you know, who are willing to sit down and at least read part of the piece. <laughs> you know? So that's, that's my fast and dirty advice there. Yeah, others on the panel, there are, you know, Kurt and, and Joe and, and uh, you know, there's a lot that was just asked how to get involved, popular topics from uh, the funding issue, uh, the funding and, and um, and the social media, um, entertainment, media crossover question. Um, if I may, um, yeah, the uh, I, yeah, a few things. Let, let me deal last with the most challenging one, which is the funding thing, because I think um, people tend to see things in a more one-on-one -on -one relationship than is um, in a in a way that confuses matters more than clarifies. Um, give a perfect example, right? I've been a member of DSA. I've come out of the communist movement, but I joined DSA in the early 80s and I'm still an active member today. We were, when I first joined, I think it would be fair to say in this crowd, a fairly reformist organization relative to most of the left. I think we've moved further to the left before then. We never had much funding. I mean, there was a lot of mythology around that. I don't think we ever had, were able to afford more than two or three paid staffers at any one time. The point of view was somewhat reformist because that was the point of view. That was the political analysis. It wasn't because a union was saying do this or corporate sponsor do this. The same in the labor movement. Some of the most, um, some of the unions that were most rooted in the membership, and I, uh, letter carriers, for example, deeply rooted in the membership. I mean, I, I, I was fairly conservative union. Okay, there were some other unions, um, you know, I mean, SEIU being the best example. I mean, not at the moment where there were a lot of leftists who, or Act to Unite Here did fantastic work, right? A lot of them never worked a day of their life in the industry, which, you know, doesn't sit well with me. But, but on the other hand, you can't just make it about that. And I think, you know, it, so it sort of sets up a false dynamic. The question is, where do your politics stem from and what's your relationship to the movement that you're working in? Doesn't mean that there aren't problems with corporate funding with NGOs and the way in which that funding silos organizations, the way in which you all of a sudden you see something pop up, everybody's talking about it, nobody's talking about somebody else. And you know that that's what funders are fighting for. I mean, one of the reasons why labor law reform always goes out the window is that no liberal corporate funder will ever fund labor law reform. It's just not going to happen. Never has. So there are issues around that. But I think it, it confuses things. The other is very, very briefly, though, just one to the way in is look for small organizations near where you are that you can get involved in and submit, 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 right? I, I send out 101 submissions to every one or two that get in, probably the relation, you know, that's okay, but and find smaller groups that are more manageable around where you are, 
And then from that, you get your feet wet, you get the ability to move out further and see where you want to take that. And I think that's most critical around that. And with social media, we're trying to, that's something we're very much talking about in Portside. Of course, rural, uh, we're a web-based thing and so on, but some people have looked into TikTok. Talk. So the challenge with that is it's a necessary thing to use, but our whole point is critical thinking. And therefore, how do you do something? And critical thinking doesn't mean boring. And the other thing about Portside, I'd say, is almost none of us come from an academic background, right? A few of us have gone into university teaching late in life because they needed a job and a living, but most of us come out of a different world than that. Nonetheless, long, lengthy articles are sort of the lifeblood of what brought us to the movement or, or enabled us to function within the movement. And, and I think we want to see that continue, but it is a different world and a precarious world. People have a different sense of time, what they can do with it, and we have to adjust. So it's something we're exploring and looking into, and there's some people in Portside who could speak to it a million times better than I could. So. Thanks, Kurt. That's really, really interesting stuff. I think a, a lot of important stuff. I think this academic, non-academic uh, issue is really important too. I, speaking from Boston, you know, I, I feel like uh, at some point, I, maybe this is another show altogether, but like, what are the possibilities for actually organizing um, kind of left academics in a place like Boston or New York, where there's a hub in a more conscious way? I mean, there's obviously spillover within, with respect to publications like Labor Press, like like Dig Boston, um, you know, in, in, other, in other venues. I think really important stuff flagged. Let's go to Joe and then Linda's gonna take the next round. I think we have a few folks with, uh, with oh, new, we, new questions. We didn't even do the first round, okay. Oh yeah, we haven't gone to you yet. Yeah, that's right. No, so let's go to, um, yeah, we go to Joe and then Jason or Jason then Joe. Jason, okay, you were go. Yeah, go, okay. Yeah, so, so as far as social media, you know, the biggest challenge we find is just the, the, the time it takes to actually do it effectively. You know, it's just manpower. You know, uh, it's just as simple as that. You know, that, that's, a, that's a full-time job, for, you know, for someone to uh, build that kind of engagement that, that you want. And it's just, a, just a, a giant time suck, really. And uh, as far as popular posts, uh, I find that the most popular stories that we do that get the most attention are either really fundamental things uh, of people doing positive things, you know, at, you know, through their workplace, through their job, or, or airing their gripes. And I think that, that both of those things go back to being seen and being heard. That's what people want. That, that's how you reach them. Really interesting, Joe. Um, being seen and being heard, uh, back to basics here. Jason? Um, Kayana, could you restate your question again? I, I wanna hear that again, if you don't mind. Sure, it's Kiana. Kiana, sorry. It's okay, thanks. What suggestions do you have for people wanting to join the movement in these smaller platforms of media? What substance or topics do your viewers tend to tune in for? Okay. So you mean like, how do you hook up with an outlet like, or a group of outlets like mine, right? Um, I think you need to, first of all, look for those outlets that see you. You, you, know, you need to see who's covering the, the communities that you're part of, who's, who's at least 
reaching out with some stories on a regular basis. You want to see the publication that has pictures of people like you and your friends and stuff like that. And then you want to go to them and say, hey, you know, I'm from this community and I have this idea for an article, right? I mean, if you're just talking about like maybe starting to write for a publication, that's one thing. If you're trying to really get involved, it really depends on the kind of organization we're talking about. Like if, it's, if it was something like my nonprofit that's doing community organizing and it's actually doing education in the community, like teaching people how to be journalists, you know, I think there's some very clear paths for how you plug in, how you get involved, how you do a lot of stuff, become prominent among the volunteers and activists in it. And then kind of maybe eventually, you know, you help raise money, you get yourself, you basically put your own staff job together and do it all the time. That's one thing. Or if it's a collective, you join the collective and you do that thing. If it's a co-op, you know what I'm saying? So like, that's, that's it. And then with publications, like, you know, you know, everybody's got to kind of push to get into a publication a little bit. Right. And you're not always going to get in, you know, even the ones you really feel like speak to you and, and, are, and, 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 and kind of are, are covering your community. So, I mean, um, or the other thing, like I said, and this is what I did in my own life. You start your own, you just do it. Okay. I mean, everything I've done, right. I had two courses in journalism in college in my whole life. I just went and started doing publications, you know, and you screw up, you do, it's fine, you know? So I would encourage you, you know, to just do it. And if you can, if you think a print publication is what you need in your neighborhood or your community of interest, great. But obviously online is, a, is, is an easier barrier to entry with many problems, okay? Which then relate to, uh, I think it was Garrett's question, you know, funding all this stuff, and it's many discontents. There is no perfect funding model. There, there is not. On the dig side, you know, we, we take the odd cigarette ad through our national advertising representative, right? We do, you know. On the nonprofit side, you know, as every like rich person or foundation that's donated to us, are they all, you know, they have clean hands? Are they all free from blame? You know, are they, are they all not perpetrators in the capitalist system? Sure, you know. But, you know, you got, you got, there's capitalists and there's capitalists. There's people that are just rapacious assholes who could give a shit and don't care if they destroy the planet in their pursuit of wealth. There's others that might've been like that when they were younger, then they get guilty. You know what I'm saying? Like there's all different kinds of things and there's all different kinds of foundations and all kinds of individual funders. And um, I would say that as journalists, when we take money from wherever, we make it clear to whoever we're taking money from, like, we'll take your money, but we're still going to attack you. You know, like I spent like my, my, uh, my colleague, Chris Ferrone, uh, you know, my, my, you know, who, who was editor in chief of Dig Boston um, and editorial director of, of Boston Institute for Nonprofit Journalism. He famously or infamously, depending on your position in the funding world, you know, like excoriated, like trashed Knight Foundation, which in the journalism space is suicide. Knight is the main funder of journalism in America for good or ill. And he went right after them, you know? So like, that's kind of our attitude. Like, yeah, I mean, you know, so it's like a combination of the nation's traditional position. Like, unless you all can give us like a cool, you know, like a couple million a year, we're gonna take whatever ads we can, right? And we're not quite that mercenary, but we understand it. And it's also a combination of like, 
you know, what I said that, you know, we'll, we'll, we're, we're going to remain journalists, remain people that are going to take seriously our, 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 our standing as tribunes of the people or whatever. And we're going to try to give people the information they need to know how they can make decisions about who to support and who not to in life. So if, if a funder sucks and we catch them in the course of our investigations, we're not gonna pull that punch. And you can either believe us or not believe us, but that's, that's our approach. Um, but there is, again, no perfect funding. And I would love to see more left-wing folks give five or 10 bucks a month to all the outlets here that at least take money. I'm not so sure Portside does, but monthly review and, you know, and um, my colleague's press, whose name I'm spacing on, um, I just chime in and tell me what the name of your, of your press is. A hardball, is it? Um, and um, give, give and, and to our publication, our nonprofit, give us money, because we honestly do not see enough well-known leftists in our neck of the woods giving us anything except occasionally complaining that we're the wrong kind of left-wingers. And then for the other question, um, if, we, if there's time and there probably isn't, um, Rachel, could you restate what you, what you were asking? Oh, I was just um, asking how um, outlets that aren't sort of like, but like optimized for social media can still use social media to connect um, without sort of becoming homogenized and um, without sacrificing the type of content that they want to produce and how it can like connect people to what they produce rather than take away from it. I think that you have to view social media as a series of relationships that you are building, even if the relationships are ephemeral, right? You need to take this seriously. So when someone says hello to you on social media, you say hello back. You know, when someone want, you know, has a question or a criticism or whatever, you engage. Um, and you, know, you, you try to use the social media, and this is very difficult to do, um, you know, because it, in, in a way it's not designed to be used. In other words, it's designed to extract you know, profit. <laughs> you know, like it's designed to extract money from everyone that interacts with it. That is all that these social media companies are for. Yet we all use them, people are there, okay. So then you have to try to say like, as we do, we've very publicly stated, we will not pay Facebook to reach our own audience. What we try to do is get the audience from social media to email lists, to places where we can talk to everybody and encourage them to talk to each other in our own space as best we can. And we just put our stuff out there for free. We, we don't put paywalls up. So, I mean, I don't know if that answers at least part of your question, but that's kind of my best current shot. Great, okay. one, one suggestion in the chat box uh, that I wrote, you know, maybe leftists with higher income should pay a tithe to the local left press. Hell uh, yes. Generally, you know what I mean? We should normalize that idea, you know? We used to, what, 10% of the church was it? Yeah. You know, do we, you know, if you don't believe in the church anymore, you know, 10% to the local secular church of the left. All right, Linda. Let's do it. All right, so we have uh, several more questions. So um, I'm just gonna take them um, one by one. I think there are four. So um, let's start with uh, John Lawrence. Um, John Hi, Lawrence, are you there? Yes, yes. 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 Uh, well, welcome back to Shelter and Solidarity. John Lawrence was um, a guest on our show earlier. So welcome. Okay. 
Thank you. Uh, I was wondering, is there a left press uh, trade association that you, you know that you work together to, to to think of the whole left press as a system and to promote you know as it promote uh, the whole system and think about how to raise money and grow grow as a as a you know as a united system and then two uh, when you guys think about most articles that are published in the left left press you know document about what's wrong with capitalism and there's not a lot of articles on kind of uh, strategizing as a movement and what larger movement goals are. Do you ever think about, you know, soliciting articles focused on, you know, organizing and, and larger movement goals? All right. So um, let's go next to um, Amicus Curla. That's Kyria. Kyria, uh, I, I have to say I really like your filter, by the way. I'm sorry. Yes. What, I'm not sure I heard you. What did you say? Uh, did you want to ask a question? Question. I do want to ask a question. Okay. Okay. I've been listening to the all of you, and um, I, uh, I get the sense that. It's almost like I'm talking to people from the 20th century, the fifth estate. We today are the media, and the uh, even Warren Buffett has dumped all of his investments in uh, in the press. Okay, there's he 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 doesn't see any money in it. I think uh, so. Uh, what I my, I guess my question is. What are you trying to do to change the paradigm to where it recognizes that the fifth estate is the one that filmed uh, George Floyd's murder and many of these other critical issues of our time? It's not the mainstream media and it's not even the alternative media or the left wing media. Uh, it is the people on the streets. Everybody's got a camera. And it seems to me that uh, if that isn't part of the discussion, then the, the discussion is missing the point. In other words, is it the purpose, is it to educate or is it to inform the people? And I'm a journalist myself. And uh, I see my role as to inform the people. And, and anytime I try to educate anybody, it doesn't go well. Go ahead. That, that's sort of my question and my observation. Thank you. OK, thank okay. you. Uh, uh, so, so next up, we have uh, Jean uh, Chernstein. I'm sorry if I pronounced that incorrectly. Fine. You did pretty well. OK. Right. Um, well, this has been really interesting. I'll, I'll just start off by saying that I really am I'm engaged. Um, I worked in Boston, Jason, I know each other. Um, I wanna say that um, I'm coming in as a writer um, and I wanna talk a little bit as a writer. I haven't really heard that perspective. Um, I think of myself as an active writer and I've always thought, yeah, I journalism 
supposed to be quote unquote. And I, I mean, that's what people are taught. You're supposed to come into this, you know, the idea that you're going to really examine every this uh, sort of perspective. I, I don't believe anymore. Uh, I don't, I go at things, I, I'm truly understanding that I have an agenda and I truly understand that I can write without necessarily um, an agenda, but I do have an agenda. Um, I have a dad agenda to, uh, I, I write about prison to expose the cities of prison. And I think that's important for a writer. And I think it's important for readers. And I'm really interested in, you know, do you now understand um, that that it's kind of going with what uh, way I think um, I, I lost the per Emma saying in a sense that you know people have taken sides people are in case this is the or fortunately the world in want to write for um, the Boston Globe want to run for where I can't expose what's going on inside a prison. And and I guess I, I'm wondering if you all understand there are a lot of people like me out there who who come to these sources to come to all whether you call it alternative media or um where whatever you want to call it, places where there's home to Real articles showing what is going in a passionate way, with whether it's for me, isn't, but for someone else, it might be climate. For someone else, it's going to unions. For someone else, it's going to be, you know, uh, cases, etc. And in immigration, and I think, I think is really where a lot of people are at, and I'm. Interesting for people. This is Jean. Jean we're starting to lose. We're, we're losing story. a lot of your your comment here. Uh, I, I guess maybe we could, if you could, maybe one last sentence. But we're about every fifth word is being dropped. I think we're getting, and we'll try to summarize your question as best we've heard it. But yeah, if you could just wrap that up. It's just it's it's very. Let's give you one like two more sentences. But we'll try to make the well. Make I don't understand what you mean. You're losing my commentary. Your 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 audio is cutting out pretty severely. You could potentially type type your, your question in the chat box to make sure we got it right. I think we got it. It's a challenge to the whole idea of objectivity and and like the idea of picking sides and and sticking with it. But um, I, I hope that's what you're 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 meaning to say. Um, yeah, but no finish up, but I just want to let you know you're it's hard to hear you. Is it still to hear me now? I just put my volume up loud hard to hear me. It's still okay. not good, but let's just yeah. Uh, just if you could just wrap it up and maybe one a couple more sentences and then we'll we'll try to get an answer to what we heard. Okay, uh, I, the thing is, are you hearing that there are many writers like me who want to write passionate, active, taking sides, exposing um, the truth, etc. Thank you, Jean. I'm sorry to cut you off there, but we just want to let you know you were being cut off. Uh, I think 
Linda, okay. is that all? That all is the question. That's all uh, the questions uh, from no, this round. No, right? no, no. Actually, um, Tim has one more okay, question great. to ask. Okay. Yeah, thank you, Linda. Uh, we've talked about social media, and I just wanted to raise a question about Facebook and other similar platforms. I see frequently. I see article links to the New York Times, CNN, the Guardian. I don't see links to Portside, Labor Press labor notes, it's just, they, they're, they're so far down on the algorithm that they just never show up on my feed. And I wonder how, what can we do to chip away at these monoliths so that we can get our articles showing up on the page? Because I will, I will post links to Portside. You know, I'll post it on my Facebook page. I don't know that anybody ever sees them because they seem to be dropped so far down. Great, and I think that's all the questions we have for this round. Is that right, Linda? Yes, that's right. So, so, um, so it can go to anybody in any order. Yeah, I just think that goes back to uh, censorship, what Tim is describing. You know, the, the legacy media still holds sway. Uh, you know, I have other freelance jobs where I, where I submit stuff. And if you're gonna link to anything, it's always, legacy media, you know, it's, it's never going to be, uh, you know, an outlet like, like Portside. Right. And uh, yeah, if I can jump in there too, I think, um, right. I mean, with Portside, I mean, we, the only thing we have is if you go click on Google, we come up first with Portside rather than a ship which shows you what's happened to the shipping industry. But it's true on the feeds, it doesn't work, right? I mean, and that's, and that's because of the, it's monopolized and we can't break through. And that's a political question that we'll have to address. And the kind of thing uh, that he was talking about, I mean, it's a little bit less relevant for us at Portside, but in general, the equivalent of what the old Liberation News Service tried to do the, or in the 30s, Federated Press. I mean, we need more of that. And we need something that promotes the integration um, of uh, selling or putting forward, uh, again, hey, market first, so Pluto, monthly review, you know, um, but that's a political task. But I, what I wanted to really address was the comment about the fifth estate, so to speak, because that's a tricky one. And it goes to what the first questioner was saying, whose name I'm blanking on, was we don't just need to inform we need to strategize. We did, I, I was very pleased with this. There was an article in um, a local sort of street level paper in DC um, in the, one of the areas where they, you know, one of the, um, one of the centers of the African-American community in the district about, you know, and some young woman from there who is going to journalism school asked her neighbors, what do you think about the street protests? And some of them had taken part in them. Some of them, it was after George Floyd. Some of them said it hasn't made any difference in my life, you know, and it was others felt liberated by it. Others said, I'm not a negative person. You know, there were, there were kinds of responses that people would get. And it was very, very compelling. And I thought it was really important, but it, it, it left what it left, which is okay, and then what? And that's the problem we have again and again. People and people, Actually, it's always been my experience that people understand what's going on on some level. They may not be able to draw the point from A to B or C, but it's what to do about it. 
And therefore it's how, and you know, and there's no cut and dried ease. I mean, I think we've been struggling with this forever, right? I mean, that's, yeah, right? So that, um, you know, people may not know that private pharmaceuticals are overcharging, but they know they're being overcharged for medications, right? They don't have to know that it's cheaper someplace else. They just know they're paying too much. People know that the rich get a better deal than the poor. I, when I was in prison, there were even the most racist white guys you would meet understood blacks were treated worse. That was their whole grievance, that they didn't want to be treated as though they were black because they were in prison. I mean, I, very few people really, I mean, obviously there's some, you know, with special blinders, but by and large, it's not the not knowing, it's what to do. And that, that to me is what is so, so critical. It's not to put down, as I said, with that uh, local paper in DC documenting what people felt, that's the material of our lives. And we have to know that and circulate that. But then we have to figure out a way to take it to the next step, including then engaging those people in what that next step would be like. So just on that. Uh, really interesting there, Kurt. I mean, it's something I think about a lot is it, it's it's not only, I mean, going back to people's own personal experiences, it's not that they don't have critical perspectives, but somehow they don't see their own perspectives as valid. Right. I mean, I know Jason, we didn't rehearse this episode, but in our production meeting a couple of days ago, you know, I mean, you said some, I mean, I think we got into this a little bit, even though people know corporations are flawed, monopoly, this and that, right? But there's still a sense that like, if it's not on TV, it's not real or something, right? Mm -hmm. so or the dominant Globe or New York Times or whatever. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Even right. though, so, I mean, I think this idea of validating, you know, people's experience, but also, uh, but also this question of strategy is just crucial. But there are other couple other questions. Uh, that okay. Can I just, yeah, one, yeah, yeah. because Amicus has commented in the chat and I just want to respond. I completely agree that the, um, you know, we are all the media. Right, I completely agree with that. But the the basis, I mean, when uh, the brother was killed, died uh, um, in uh, Staten Island from being strangled to death, it didn't stop what happened to George Floyd. Right, so we see what's going on. The George Floyd thing, what what happened to him, touched a chord that unleashed what people have known, and they gave voice to what they knew and then the names and the names and the names. But there's a connection between knowing and acting and now we're still back at the same point. Nothing has been resolved. That's our problem. I, you know, and again, if I had the answer, God knows, I wish I did, right? There were a couple other questions there. I know we had a rich mix that Linda just took. Um, the um, one of them that John Lawrence, I want to make sure John Lawrence's question gets addressed, which is the whole question of getting the is there anything going on to, to help the left media think as a system as opposed to, you know, just a number of competing entities in a field, right? Is there what what inroads are exist or are potential um, in terms of getting the the left media to think like uh, the collective kind of cooperative system that it is or could be, John? If that's a fair summary of your your question. Uh, and there were a couple others too, but Camilla and Jason, uh, I'd love to hear you on that. Sure, yes. Um, actually, at the beginning of the pandemic, there was an attempt at something like an, a network of at least left presses. Um, the thing that gets tricky about that is that, you know, we all 
are also workplaces um, with our own tensions. And so, you know, we're represented by different unions. Um, we have different business models. Some left presses are for profit. Others like monthly review are not for profit. You know, there's like, there are different things that are at play in something like a, a kind of left wide network of independent publishers um, that I think has a lot of potential, but especially in, in a moment like COVID, um, several uh, left presses recently just unionized. There's, there's, we each have our own tensions and then there's the tensions kind of industry-wide. And so I think it's a, it's a much longer conversation is, the, is my kind of short answer to that. Yeah, and we are getting towards the end of our time tonight as well. Jason though, do you wanna step into that one? Um... Sorry, I'm trying to like look at chat. Yeah, I know, right, it's right, like right. It's, it's all kind of whack that way. Yeah, all right. Um, yeah, is there a left press organization that plans strategically to grow the media as a system? No, there is not. Um, I, I'll give you a little anecdote from my own life. Um, in 1996, you know, there was a big progressive media confab in San Francisco run by Utney Media and Nation and other kind of big left-leaning, at least, publications of the time. Uh, and, um, you know, I, I was one of the people organizing the kind of younger end of that media and trying to get the more established um, organizations in that group to help us form a national advertising consortium and a, a sponsorship consortium for broadcast media and so on and so forth. And um, uh, this would require, you know, publications like The Nation and other larger outlets that had pretty decent funding and stuff to take the time and the treasure to help the rest of us, you know, to, to lift all boats. Um, didn't work. They wouldn't do it. They just, they just wouldn't do it. Okay. So, I mean, like, um, it's, it's very difficult. And I think Camila sort of touched on this. Um, every media organization, like every human organization, is somewhat different and has, its, has a certain amount of territoriality. There are those that are more willing to collaborate, which I often say is the mode journalists and media people really need to be in now, especially like that, you know, you're not going to do it all on your own. You're not going to be the best thing ever by yourself. You must work with others you know, uh, or as Benjamin Franklin apparently said, you know, if we do not all hang together, we shall surely all hang separately, right? <laughs> so, you know, I mean, it's just tough, man. You know, it's uh, uh, people in media are kind of mavericky, very independent, irrespective of politics. It is, and I can say this as an artist too, when I've tried to organize artists to do stuff, it's like herding cats, you know, very, very well-educated cats, you know, so, so you know. Um, and there is class divide in, in, in the left that I did talk about in our pre-meeting or whatever it was called, um, that, that does play into this too. You know, um, not everyone uh, who works for the more elite left outlets sees this problem, but it is there, right? Um, and I, you know, it's a whole, whole nother topic to discuss that. As far as uh, running articles and organizing a larger movement goals, absolutely, we do that a lot. I, I'm, I, I'm sure monthly review does, although I don't read it religiously, I apologize, you know, but yeah, that's absolutely, I think what any good publication should do that leans left and is interested in growing movements, you know, you have to let people talk about it and, and also again, debate about it. Um, on the, the people are the media trope, 
Um, no, they are not. The people are not the media. This is a misapprehension of the of the, of the word media, right? You know, me, you know, a medium is is something that stands, um, you know, that helps telegraph what one person or group of people is saying in one place elsewhere, so other people can hear it and kind of get, ideally, if it's good media, a back and forth going, right? Um, everyone being media is what kind of has led to, you know, the rise of insanity on social media. You know, you have these big corporations whose job again is to just extract money, profit from anybody that touches them and not really care about any social consequences, which will sound familiar to any leftist in any trade or walk of life. Like this is kind of what capitalism does at its worst, right? And so they're more than happy to let everyone have their voice and slug it out and say whatever, you know, at any time, conspiracy theories, you know, made up stuff, like whatever, it doesn't matter, right? Good media, certainly good news media is trying to get people, you know, a modicum of, of training in techniques that help us to be fair and accurate about what we're talking about, to help, you know, um, communities to understand themselves, to, to help dialogue and debate to progress um, by using certain methods that have been hammered out over a couple, three, four hundred years of doing journalism or things like journalism, right? You, you, in, and you know, the idea of citizen journalism to me is like an insult. It's basically saying like, well, we're the big important, you know, um, you know, actual journalists, and you're citizen journalists, aren't you cute? We're gonna pat you on your little head. Like we want to, I mean, good journalists want to train other people, and in our case, in my group's case, we want to train working people to do what we do as working people already, to join us in doing this, to do it as a specialty, okay? So, which leads to Jean's comment, right? Which she brings up challenging, challenging objectivity. It's interesting, like objectivity as a concept and as a practice is dying for a variety of reasons, okay? But objectivity is two things. It's what people have generally heard, especially in college media classes, if you took one, like in objectivity is this idea that journalists can be above the political fray and not like neutral arbiters, which is a garbage concept on its face. And that's dying. But what's also dying, and this is related to like the everyone is media thing, is the idea of objectivity in its original version, which was to apply the scientific method to the production of journalism, right? To try to get good sources, to try to get different voices you know, in your stories, right? And, and let the different sides of the story come out and sort of debate each other within to, you know, to, to seek out accurate information and transmit it, right? And to be fair about all this, that too is dying. So, I mean, you know, um, in a way, I, I feel like, uh, like challenging objectivity is almost not even necessary anymore. Trying to rescue what was good about the original concept of objectivity is, is important. Yeah. Thanks and, for that, Jason. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, oh, I'm sorry. I'm taking too long. I know. Um, uh, we are getting a little close to two hours. So, no, I mean, we're going to give oh, everyone yeah. a chance Tim's to. This question's big. We're going to give, I mean, there's clearly, I mean, we're flagging major issues at the end of this conversation. As I often tell my students in their papers, sometimes, you know, you reach the, the new hypothesis at the end of the discuss, you know, end of the first draft. Uh, and so, I mean, this whole issue of the status of objectivity today, I think, could be the kickoff for an entire new discussion. Uh, we want to give each of you one final chance tonight in a moment to just offer us parting words 
maybe just like three, you know, like, I mean, inspired by the poet, you know, Ferlinghetti with whom we began, you know, a couple of well-chosen phrases or sentences you can leave us with parting, whether your words or others, something that you think could take people forward. Or if you want to plug something very concrete that people can, can plug into, that they can contribute to, uh, we would really love to give people some, some inspiring or informing final words or something that they can, that they can contribute to beyond, beyond themselves. I think there's any number of issues that have been flagged tonight that we, uh, you know, that we haven't addressed. One that I also want to flag, Jason, and have you back on this one. I know you've done some work here in Massachusetts on it, is trying to address the whole scarcity problem in terms of resources for independent media. I mean, I think the premise that hasn't been maybe as implicit throughout this whole discussion is then, you know, it's, it's difficult or, you know, it's survival strategies within a kind of difficult environment. But you know, who says that we have to be fighting for more and more, you know, whether it's competing or, or not with other left organizations for scarce or shrinking resources or maybe slightly growing resources or whatever in this COVID moment as people get radicalized. But like there's incredible wealth, incredible abundance in this society. And what can we do? What mechanisms are available to actually increasing the pool of total resources that are available to the good kind of objective and good kind of subjective <laughs> you know, uh, journalism and writing. Uh, I know, Jason, this is something I know you, you've talked about, you not talked about, you've worked very hard at the Massachusetts state level talking about, and I don't want to put words in your mouth here, but maybe, maybe I don't want to, you know, I'd love to hear your final words on this about what we can, can we leverage the state? Can we leverage our unions? Can we leverage our you know, organizations beyond, you know, our own individual pocketbooks? Can we break out of what has been called the small business mentality of the left and of left media in particular? not just subjectively, but by really transforming the terrain here. Um, that, that's more a flagging, that's my final comment, uh, not yours. So I'm not trying to box you in there, but I would love to hear maybe in the order we started, uh, a couple closing sentences from each of you. And then we're gonna wrap up, we're almost at two hours. I gotta thank the sponsors, unpaying, but very comradely labor contributing sponsors. Uh, Camila, help to take us home. I'm, I'm gonna go for the plug. Um, so Monthly Review has always aimed to um, contribute to ongoing struggles and movements and to make our materials as accessible as possible to grassroots organizers. Um, and as part of that goal, we offer a solidarity discount for organizations, groups, and unions. Um, and those are like loose terms. Um, so, you know, we hope to become a resource for you for your political education needs. So I'm going to put the link in the chat. Um, basically, if you want several copies of the same book or several copies of an issue or several sub subscriptions, um, we give a solidarity discount if you're part of a union or an organization or a group who's doing that together. Um, and we also, in the form, we ask more about it so that we can stay in touch with you and help you. Um, so just to plug that, Thank you, Camilla. And when I was working at an independent bookstore in Cambridge, y'all sent me all kinds of stuff, books, free, free books and stuff, y'all. I mean, you really do, uh, you really do support folks when they reach out. So that's great. Uh, let's go to Jason. Okay. Um, well, thanks for everyone for, for coming tonight. It's been fun and I hope it was useful for all folks and uh, anyone who wants to uh, say hello can reach me at uh, this email here exec editor at digboston.com is probably the shortest one so my quip would be media matters to actually get it what joe was was trying to get me to get to um 
this is a message to the, to the left as a leftist, um, but just in general to everybody. Everybody believes in democracy, certainly. Like it's not an afterthought. Okay, it's 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 a a, a core necessity for anybody that's interested in, in building a better society. Certainly, right, and it it requires support, of course, but it also requires people to think about. I think to think about this the way, um, you know, well, let, let's do the Marxist thing. Antonio Gramsci would think about it. Like we're trying to build, if we're on the left, yes, a left hegemony, a left culture, okay? We can't do that without what I call, especially when I talk to Surin Mudliar here, the air war, right? The war of ideas, the wave front of ideas that go out in advance of our actual ground level organizing. We can't do it. We can't refine those ideas, make them better. And we can't, engage with our ideological you know, opponents um, without, you know, on the ground without first engaging with them you know, in this arena. So it's, it's, it cannot be an afterthought. There have to be those of us that specialize in it and do it and others need to support us. And we need an independent media, not just a captured media, which all too many unfortunately left, I don't know, group school, they call them in France, little parties, but more importantly, I think, you know, big unions, groups like that, big NGOs, big advocacy groups, they want their party press. I don't think that's wise to just do that. So that's my, that's my, that's my finish. Thank you, Jason. Needing the air war to support the ground war of, uh, of mobilization and organizing. I think it's a powerful metaphor. Kurt, let's go to you and then we'll, we'll go to Joe. I think you're muted, muted, Kurt. Make sure to unmute. We don't want to miss you. Thank you, sorry about that. Okay, yes. Um, and first of all, my thank you to you, to everybody. This has been great. I really appreciate it. I learned a lot as I always do. Very quick, super quick because that one comment that got cut off. Yes, a lot of people who read our articles themselves wanna write and are themselves activists. There's a direct correlation between that. And that's an important incentive because those people are interested in learning, are interested in teaching, and those interested in teaching are interested in learning. And those that is the same, and that's what journalism and writing is all about. Um, the plug, portsite.org, subscribe, it's free. You know, it doesn't fill up your box, you can do it, but yes, I urge everybody and encourage everybody to do so. My final thought is never underestimate people never do so and never assume that people will fall in one box. When I um, taught in prison, when I was in prison, I taught a class and we read Death of a Salesman. It was people's favorite play because they related to Biff. They related to being sold a bill of goods in a world and having their illusion shattered. That's real, you know? and. You can take that and some of them couldn't read very well. Some of them were well-educated, didn't matter. That came through. Um, finally, the whole point in all this, just to be a little cliched, but it's true. And it goes to some of this discussion about media. What's the IWW watchword? Agitate, educate, organize. We need to do all three all the time. Thank you. Thank you, Kurt. And I have to say, I appreciate bringing in some literature at the end. Um, you know, we're going to try to do more on shelter and solidarity to conjure the imagination of people and the creativity. And I think that literature and art has a 
has a role to play in that among, as well as analysis and strategy. Um, you know, we're all trying to live in this world as well as get beyond it in some way. Joe? Yeah, so Joe, I think you had a great idea. Uh, if, we, if we did have uh, people who had the means to support us, we could do everything that we talked about here tonight, figure out everything that we discussed and uh, really get someplace. So if anybody wants to support laborpress.org out there, please uh, log on and, and contact us and support everybody else here. Terrific, Joe. That's laborpress, laborpress.org. Uh, we have Portside, we have Monthly Review, we have Dig Boston and Binge. Um, and we also have a couple co-sponsors who are on the media business as well. Hardball Press is a, is a co-sponsor of this, of this program. Tim Sheard, also a co-producer. Uh, Sh um, Shelter and Solidarity is also brought to you by Socialism and Democracy, a uh, longstanding journal, research journal serving activists and organizers in the, in the broad left from a social, socialist and, and democratic perspective. We're also brought to you by Encuentro Cinco, Waging, as Jason said the other night, this is not Encuentro Cinco's language, but uh, the ground war, a base of organizing in, in downtown Boston. Um, you know, been around for over a decade doing crucial work here in the city. And, uh, we, you know, we need folks to support them as well. We also are supported by Community Church of Boston. Our newest sponsor is Liberty Tree, the Liberty Tree Foundation for the Democratic Revolution. 